Jeanette Mott-Oxford has spent decades fighting for progressive causes, and now her attention is focused on the Missouri legislature and a Riverfront Stadium proposal. The Empower Missouri Executive Director joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, seven, six, six five, five, four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio on this Monday afternoon is... Joe Manis, also St. Louis Public Radio. And our very special guest today... Jeanette Mott-Oxford, Executive Director of Empower Missouri. And a former uh, member of the Missouri House of Representatives. But that that was your past. You're, You're currently the Executive Director of Empower Missouri. Before we ask you about your life story in 10 or 15 minutes... So tell us a little bit about what Empower Missouri is and what its history is and what its focus is on right sure. now. Sure. Uh, Empower Missouri was actually founded in 1901 as the Missouri Conference on Charities and Corrections. Uh, there was sort of a national conference movement going on as academics and philanthropists and people that worked in corrections um, started paying attention to what does sort of scientific research say on deep social ills like prison conditions or uh, how we treat people who are mentally ill. And so folks started to attend um, national conferences on social uh, topics, and a group said, we need to really form a group like this in Missouri. So in 1901, a Missouri conference was formed. They changed their name a few years later. Uh, And then again in 1933 to the Missouri Association for Social Welfare. Uh, And then uh, last year, we decided to switch to the name Empower Missouri because people kind of got that Missouri Association for Social Welfare confused. They kept using the word social workers instead of social welfare. They <laughs> thought we were just uh, sort of like a you know a trade agency of people that worked in social work, uh, and um, they would get you know the initials turned around backwards. And even the word welfare, unfortunately, is a hot potato word that will get doors shut in your face. So we wanted to uh, basically choose a name that said, when citizens are informed and active, our democracy works better. So we want to empower all Missourians to participate in the process. It's a, it's a punchier name than the Missouri Association for Social Welfare. I don't have to breathe during I, you know, saying it to get it all out, yes. But I do remember, I do remember when I was first starting out um, covering Missouri politics that it was a pretty active organization, mm-hmm, especially when the Medicaid cuts happened in 2005 and many things that were occurring during the Matt Blunt administration. Well, right. Over time, they've done tremendous things to improve the state of Missouri. I mean, they really believe in that motto that the will of the people should be the supreme law and and uh, to have a philosophy that when we all do better, we all do better. And so, um, you know, th- therefore, they've worked on things like creating the Commission on on Human Rights that um, sees that there is, is discrimination law in our state uh, related to housing, public accommodation, and hiring. Um, we've worked on uh, childhood hunger bills. We've worked on the Missouri Housing Trust Fund. Um, so uh, we're a big, big umbrella kind of organization that actually has six issue areas, affordable housing, criminal justice, economic justice, health and mental health, hunger, and human rights. So we do a whole lot of things, and we have task forces on all of those topics and work in coalition with more groups than I could name. Now, does it hurt or impede your group's efforts because of the state's tight economic times the last 
really more or less the last 10 years and also with the fact, a few bump and and then with the tax cuts the and, last and also years. the fact that you're you're dealing with a Republican legislature that has grown in Republican numbers since even when you left office essentially well and many of them don't necessarily share your views on stuff that's true when when I started in October of 2012 uh, there, we did have some members who said, well, we just weren't going to be able to win anything right now because of the composition of things. But uh, I think one of the things that I learned when I was in office, that maybe the best thing that I learned from 2005 till 2012, uh, is that party labels are so unhelpful uh, and that there will be people on the other side of the aisle whose hearts are as good as gold, who really, really care about children in poverty, who you can get together with on a values kind of uh, question and work on something. Uh, and there will be people on your side of the aisle that you agree with and other people on your side of the aisle that um, aren't real responsible, you know, don't always show up for the committee hearings, et cetera. So party label doesn't tell you anything about a person's character or, or whether they're willing to work on you for something that's good. So we've been sticking to values and had tremendous help from Republicans like, say, Senator Paul Wheeland, who helped us um, uh, get uh, one of Senator Kiki Curl's uh, bills through that related to getting rid of the ban on food stamps for people who had drug felonies, which was a which was a an issue that had been pushed for years, yes, unsuccessfully. Yeah, exactly. So I'm focusing on let's organize around values and not parties. Our, I worked in the 1990s with Democrats in the House, Senate, and Governor's Mansion, and we still couldn't get things done. We wanted about poverty. So it's not about parties. It's about where are our priorities, what do we care about, and where do we want to invest. So, so we want to know a little bit more about yourself. Mm -hmm. um, before we get into your elected career, mm -hmm. we always ask, you know, your entire life story <laughs> and also where you went to high school. I, know, I, I, I like always short circuiting Joe on that question, <laughs> but I know, I think you're a native of Illinois. Sort of I like am. Me. I grew up in rural southern Illinois. Uh, in rural route, uh, Elizabethtown was our address. No town in the county had over 500 people. I graduated from Caven Rock High School, uh, one of the only towns in the United States that's hyphenated, possibly. Now, how close is it to any sort of major community? It's about 70 miles from uh, Carbondale, okay. uh, southeast of, of Carbondale. It's literally right on the Ohio River, and in the spring, it's in the Ohio River. Oh, wow. uh, we got flooded a lot. Uh, and there's a ferry boat there that'll take you to Kentucky. You can get to Paducah in about an hour. So uh, Cape Girado and Evansville uh, and, and uh, Paducah would be kind of the biggest cities around us. Okay. It, I think that's one of the, the parts of Illinois with quite a bit of poverty. It is. It's a very high poverty. Uh, a, a part of how I came to be who I am is that my grandpa died when I was 10 of of, uh, of cancer that probably could have been treated easily. He was, he'd been a farmer. This is right before Medicare came in. Mm -hmm. So he just avoided going to the doctor and had this spot on his ear that he didn't do anything about. He just painted it with something called methylate, if you remember that yes, stuff. Yes, I remember yeah. that. <laughs> there you go. Probably before Jason's time. Yeah, it yeah. is before yeah. my time. And then just as I graduated um, uh, high school and went on to community college at Harrisburg, Illinois, um, my dad was hurt in a non-union mine, a rarely unsafe mine. A few years before that, uh, 11 of his co-workers had died uh, of gas underground. Wow. And um, those kind of worker justice uh, issues and uh, denial of health care because people don't have money uh, got kind of deep in me uh, over some you know, family connections like they do in a lot of people. So th that's part of how I came to work and what I work in. My understanding, though, is you have kind of a religious a theological background from your, your higher education. Is that correct? Uh, what eventually got me to St. Louis was that I moved here to an, attend Eden Theological Seminary in Webster Groves in 1986. And I have a Master of Divinity from there uh, that I got in 1989. 
1989. I actually grew up in a tent revival family. My parents sang in a gospel quartet. I have a really <laughs> fundamentalist kind of background. I was the kind of teenager that drove around saying uh, to people, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior when I'd like pick up a hitchhiker? Honest to God, that's that's who I was. Uh, and, <laughs> um, and I think you just I'm got... a little more theologically um, uh, liberal now, you could say. I'm a member of the United Church of Christ, which is pretty different than the General Baptist that I grew up with, but I have a lot of respect for both groups. I was just going to say, because I think I saw on Twitter that you also received a copy of The Great Controversy in the mail. I did. Do you yes. have any clue on what denomination that is? Because I, I, I skimmed through it and I was like, I don't. I don't understand what this is. You know? I didn't spend enough time looking at it to analyze it. I'm sorry. I, d- I put it just right in the recycling It's, it's actually become a social media phenomenon mm. throughout yes. St. Louis. But, yes, but it anyways. has. Huh. But go ahead. So uh, that's what got me here uh, was, to, was to go to seminary. And uh, um, since I am an out lesbian, I had a little trouble getting ordained in that time period. Now, a lot of so people you were have already been since out then. then. I was yeah. already out. That's right. Okay. Uh, so there was quite a fight about me uh, because there weren't people that had sought that in Illinois South Conference, Conference of the United Church of Christ at that time. So I wound up finding uh, alternative uh, employment rather than being in the church uh, at a place called Reform Organization of Welfare, or Rowell for short, a group that had formed in 1972 to work on uh, deep poverty issues, especially those involving uh, people on what was called Aid to Families with Dependent Children then, yes. the FDC, uh, and on food stamps, which are now called TANF and SNAP. Uh, things change labels over time. So I was there for nine years and um, grew pretty frustrated frustrated that we couldn't get things through the legislature that would make uh, life better for people who are poor. So I started trying to re- recruit people to run for office. And um, and people would turn me down and they'd say, I don't want to go work with those crazy people, but you'd be really good. So the first time you ran for <laughs> office was, I think, in 2000. I ran in 2000. Against... Not a time you want to run against a guy named Russ Carnahan. I was going to say, yeah, because yeah. his dad was still governor. I remember um, his at a fundraiser that his father did for Russ. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was probably 99. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, I just remember all that because I, that's when I first got wind. That the governor was concerned that his son wouldn't be able to win the because, state rep seat. And I'm not mm-hmm. trying to put any spoilers out there, but you only lost to Russ Carnahan by 64 votes, which That's was correct. kind of a, a shocker to many people because they thought that he would just win handily. And I think it was not only a potential sign of his own political weakness down the road, but a show of your strength later on when you ran in 2004. Well, I I met with him in advance and I said, I think our voting records would be very, very similar. I'm not running against you because I don't think you'd do a good job. I'm running because I think it's important that we talk about poverty and how it affects us all. Mm -hmm. He said, I hope you won't run, but if you do, it'll be a really clean race. We'll keep it to the issues. And he kept his word about that. I said, well, everybody thinks, you know, that conventional wisdom is that you'll beat me handily. So if you should win, I want to sit down with you and ask you to sponsor something that I would have sponsored. And he kept his word on that, too. When I did lose, he um, sat down in my living room and agreed to sponsor an earned income tax credit bill uh, that I asked him to sponsor. And we've actually remained, you know, having a pretty good relationship since that time. When he ran for Congress uh, four years later, people urged me to run again. And I I ran and I was able to win at that time. And then you ran for four terms Mm -hmm. and you, you unsuccessfully ran for Senate in 2012. And that's where you are today. I'm just kind of curious, though, as somebody who watched you navigate a very conservative legislature and sometimes stake the flag on some issues of poverty and health care, were there, were there times where you were just very, very frustrated with basically being a voice in the wilderness around a lot of Republicans and conservative Democrats? Or do you feel like you were able to get your message across eventually by the time that you left in, in 2012? 
I think that on some fronts I was successful and on others I wasn't. (laughs) Often the media would at least pick up what I had to say. I was often quoted because I was willing to argue the other side about some things that were, you know, controversial or, or, um, you know, unpopular to speak about, like protest at funerals. I remember remember that, that. Bill. I actually (laughs) do remember that. And I think I was one of the media people who quoted you when I was a student at the Columbia, Missouri. Mm. You were, I think, one of two people that voted against it. I think the other one might have been Tom Villa. It was Tom Villa. Yeah. Yeah. I think there were maybe three of us. But uh, in any case, uh, we we turned out to be right, according to the Supreme Court later, that struck that law down. So uh, it was uh, strange that I was standing up for the right of Fred Phelps and those, you know, hateful people from Topeka, Kansas, to do protests that I'd walk through many times. I'd been picketed by those people at events that I'd been at, um, but I still think that they should have freedom of speech as long as they carry out their First Amendment rights within the law. So, Were, were you the first out lesbian to be elected to the... I was. I was not the first out uh, LGBT person. Uh, that was Tim Van Zandt, but um, yeah, I, I was uh, an out, the first out lesbian. I, yes. I, I asked this to, to Julie Justice when she was leaving as well. Um, did you often get like when, when there was a LGBT issue people automatically turn to you as when I say people, the media, like to ask you questions. And what was kind of your reaction when you were called upon to comment on, on that all the time? Do you feel like it was part of your role as an LGBT legislator to articulate that? Or did you feel like you were pigeonholed too much only on LGBT issues? No, I didn't feel like I was pigeonholed that way. And I think part of it is that, that I'd had a long history of working mainly on poverty. Uh, and, and, you know, hunger and real basic human needs kind of issues. So people tended to come to me for those issues a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, also, you know, when, when Promo talked to me about did I want to help to sponsor the Non-Discrimination Act, uh, MONA, the Missouri Non- Non-Discrimination Act, um, I said I really felt that it was the job of heterosexuals to try to strike that down because they benefit from heterosexual privilege, and therefore I shouldn't be the lead sponsor of it. Uh, that it should be someone else. And uh, uh, so other legislators um, carried that, most recently Stephen Weber. Yeah, and it, it's, we had Gina Walsh on our show, mm-hmm. and she was one of the few um, people in 2004 to vote against putting the gay marriage ban on the ballot. It was overwhelmingly put on the mm-hmm. ballot by Republicans and Democrats. And now it seems, at least in, in, in the Democratic side, it, it, it's like almost conventional wisdom that they would have been against that now. What's kind of been your reaction to kind of the change in attitudes toward not only that issue, but also the the, the discrimination issue that's still pending right now mm-hmm. before the legislature? Well, I, I do think that the reason that's changed is because uh, people have lived their lives out and open and that it's changed the hearts and minds of people. That's what breaks down prejudice is repeated positive interactions with the object of your prejudice. Uh, I grew up in a really you know, almost all white county. You know, I was told a ton of lies about people of color before I came to St. Louis. I'll admit I was scared when I moved to St. Louis. I'd been told you'll get on the right, wrong street and black people will kill you. And I didn't have anything to compare that to. So living here and, and having my first relationships with African-Americans, with Latinos, with Asian-Americans, with a lot of people that I hadn't met before, a religiously diverse group of folks having come from this, you know, tent revival fundamentalist kind of background that I came from. Uh, it was really eye-opening and uh, changed how I saw the world, and especially when I learned how prejudice is taught by going to something called the Dismantling Racism Institute in 1996. My life really opened up to seeing the world a new way. So um, I, I think that uh, uh, we can get past these kind of issues uh, if, if we'll bother to listen uh, to, to the, the object of 
of the fears that we have and, and the um, what we may not recognize as stereotypes because we've never had any way to challenge what we were told. Now, you've been active in the legislature either as a member or as a head of a, a group mm-hmm. uh, for about 25 years. Since almost. 1991, yeah. even longer. Yeah. yeah. So. I'm interested in kind of your take on what you, how you've observed either changes mm-hmm. uh, over that time and how lawmakers either, not just the issues that, that you deal with, but mm-hmm. just in general. Sure. Uh, I do think that term limits has hurt the quality of our lawmaking. I think that um, people uh, who were there longer were somewhat more professional in how they conducted a con- committee meeting, for example. A lot of legislators used to go to the National Conference of State Legislatures and learn about best best practices in other states and uh, have sort of a signature issue that they tried to make progress on. Because a lot of progress is incremental, and you have to do a little bit this year and a little bit next year. So when, when parties put people into uh, leadership roles because they are in, a say, a swing district where you want to give them more visibility, instead of by skill sets or, you know, passion that people have for issues, et cetera, that doesn't particularly lead to a good situation. And then you mentioned earlier the difficulty of getting things passed in the tight budget climate that we're in. Uh, The Hancock Amendment that we passed and our failure to reform our tax code that has a tax table that's from 1931 has set us up to have a genuine crisis. Uh, And it's you know, rapidly coming to pass. Uh, things will get much worse than they are right now because, you know, Hancock was supposed to keep us from overtaxing. So you'd think, uh, you know, if if we don't go over that and have to give money back to the people, we're not overtaxing. But we're about $4 billion with a B below the Hancock caps right now. And I think that's a sign of how badly we're not doing maintenance of effort toward really essential programs in our state. How would you change the tax code or, I mean, to make things? Yeah. Well, our top tax bracket starts at $9,000 a year of taxable income. That was a lot of money in 1931, but it's not much money now. So about 60% of Missourians pay in our top tax bracket. That's ridiculous. I would update those numbers to reflect modern realities, and I would add an inflation calculator to keep them constant with the real cost of living. So you mean you'd, what, have higher tax brackets at, like... Well, like maybe, maybe not start the top tax bracket to like $80,000 a year of taxable income or something like that. Yeah. So would you have lower tax brackets below or higher? Well, I would than than I nine. would have lower taxes for people that say the 40% of Missourians that make less than $33,000 a year, they would not get taxed much. Uh, the people that are more in the middle would be you know taxed more moderately and those that that uh, or in the higher amounts would pay more. Yeah, because as you mentioned, because it's at nine thousand, everybody basically gets taxed. At Just six about everybody. Five point five percent starting yep. in two thousand seventeen. Right. Under that, it would it, it, you would have to make a lot more money to get mm-hmm. taxed at five point five, and I guess it's basically the same if, mm-hmm. if if you're above that as it is now, essentially. Because if you make eighty thousand dollars a year, you're getting taxed at five point five percent anyways. Another flaw in our tax code is that we allow a deduction for federal income taxes paid. We're one of only six states that allows that. Um, something like eighty-three percent of the benefit of that goes to the wealthiest forty percent of Missourians. So it doesn't do anything to help with the people at the bottom. Uh, and it's just based on this notion that, oh, well, that's double taxation because I've already paid money to the feds. Well, you pay money to the federal government to get a certain set of services and programs to the state for another set to the local area for another thing. So that's a that's not really an argument that applies, but it's very popular. People cite it and, and they don't do anything to change that. But Missouri is actually missing 400 to 600 million dollars a year in money that could be used on things like our schools. 
um, on, uh, you know, on the four out of five people with mental illness that can't get services because we can't afford it in our Department of Mental Health if we would, would just get rid of that deduction for federal income taxes paid. Now, I mean, do you hear any much supportive talk in Jeff City, or is this something that while you may have some people who agree with you, they don't see a path to getting it put in place. I will occasionally have a one-on-one conversation with a member of the majority party who sees some wisdom in some of the tax things that I say. And actually, like Paul Kurtman mm-hmm. uh, had a bill to change tax brackets in, in a direction that I liked. Um, not not totally, but he was headed the right way there. Um, so, And uh, Mike Kelly, a Republican, had a bill to create a state-earned income tax credit. So there's starting to be a little more play. Uh, I'm hoping that, you know, the fact that I've been singing this song in the, you know, loudly for at, at least since 2005 when I came into office has helped to influence that conversation. Uh, but I can only do my little bit. And I think a whole lot of people are raising these issues. Yeah. So let's shift gears to something that is probably not as weighty as schools or <laughs> mental health, but is getting a lot of attention. That's the stadium in St. Louis. Now, one of the, your roles that you had before you were elected to office was you led ballot initiatives, I guess, in the city and the county to put um, any stadium funding contingent on a public vote. It's been struck down in the city. It's still within the St. Louis County Charter. And actually, St. Louis County Executive Steve Stanger says pretty flat out he's not going to allow any sort of stadium funding without a public vote. So. Mm-hmm. What's been kind of your your view of this entire situation coming from that perspective? Well, I founded the Coalition Against Public Funding for Stadiums in 2001 because uh, it it outraged me that we would would consider putting up $430 million worth of public money for a Cardinals ballpark at a time when basically you couldn't uh, find an elevator that worked at the the Department of Public Health there on North Grand when it was there. You know, if you were like going in to be tested for AIDS, right. you might have to walk up nine flights of stairs. I mean, this this was ridiculous to me. So I started the group and, and we did get um, a, a petition initiative started in the city and county, won an ordinance in the city because we were in a hurry, took time to do the charter change in the county where it passed 72 percent without an advertising budget on our part to like convince people to vote that way. So that shows you where the public really is. Uh, and I, I do think we have a good chance with our appeal to um, to overturn Frawley's decision. Uh, our ordinance in the city did have a severability call, uh, clause. So the, the parts of it that he objected to, you would think the rest of it should be able to stand. Uh, and uh, uh, we were, uh, you know, very careful in how we drafted it. So I think we could win that that appeal. So who is your lawyer handling this, and kind of where are you in the legal fight? Well, right there now? there are several lawyers helping us, but uh, my main contact is John Ammon at the St. Louis Legal Clinic, um, who I think is just such a wonderful man. He's worked on many things that I care about, uh, you know, um, funding for the blind, um, uh, municipal court reform. Uh, he's just uh, a stellar man and uh, servant of the people, in my opinion. Now, we talked with Alderman Jack Coder a few weeks ago, who is one of the co-sponsors of a financing plan that's going to the Board of Aldermen. And I asked him about this overlying tension about this debate, because there are a lot of aldermen who feel like this shouldn't be up to the aldermen. It should be up for a public vote. Here's what he had to say about that. So I guess if you had asked me, you know, earlier this year, should there be a public vote, knowing very little about what we would have been voting on, I probably would have said yes. But then, you know, a judge, I think rightfully so, said, look, you can't have public votes deciding who gets what state incentive packages and, you know, CDDs and TDDs and all these various taxing instruments. Those are those are creatures of state law. The public 
in the city doesn't get to add extra rules for getting those for participating in those programs. And rightfully, I think threw the statute out. Your response to Alderman Coder. Well, I, I disagree. Uh, I certainly am a big proponent of representative government, that, that we shouldn't just like get rid of legislatures and put a box in all our living rooms and we push a button and we all you know vote and decide things that way. Because I think it's important that we have deliberative debate, that we hear testimony on both sides any time that there's going to be a vote on something and that all of the, the facts are aired. But the thing is that there is no evidence that these kind of publicly funded stadiums have produced the results that are promised. It's overwhelmingly the other direction direction. And the the uh, elected members of the Board of Aldermen were not listening to their own constituents. There comes a time for the public to put down their foot. That's why we did the petition initiative. There are issues worth doing that on. Do you feel that stadiums are just a kind of wasteful expenditure given the other problems of St. Louis or any other places? I think that sports makes a lot of money and that they should have to pay to to carry out their own projects like a little coffee shop would if they wanted to add an extra room or you know put new carpeting or <laughs> curtains in or something a little a little business would have to do that out of their profits. I think sports could do that and I think that there are uh, really really essential areas in our city like one that was cited in debate recently was our high infant mortality rate in the city. Why not direct tax dollars to something as sad as children dying before their first birthday. So as you kind of mentioned, like or kind of alluded to, the Board of Aldermen will get to vote on this package, but it's looking more and more likely that the state legislature will not have any sort of vote. Like it, they won't have a legislative vote and it's probably not going to go to a statewide vote. And that's caused a lot of consternation among a bipartisan group of legislators. It's obviously very conservative lawmakers like Senator Rob Schaff, but also not so conservative lawmakers like Tracy McCreary, a Democrat. And I asked uh, the governor about this growing discord about this move. Um, and this is what he had to say a few weeks ago. You know, last year, one of the reasons why we had the task force put forth uh, the proposal in January was so that the legislature would have the entire session to look at it. And, and they did. And quite frankly, there were bills in and amendments offered and things like that. Uh, and they had discussions about them. Uh, ultimately, um, any language to, to slow down the method, the taxpayer uh, uh, protection methods that we have to move forward uh, were taken off the bills. So they had a good shot last year to look at it, and we'll continue to move forward uh, to make sure St. Louis remains an NFL city in the ways that we outline. So I think what the governor is alluding to there is the fact that there was an amendment on the budget that would have required either a legislative or statewide vote before any bonds could be extended. And it was taken off during a budgetary conference committee. And that has been the argument that both he and other proponents of the stadiums have been using to justify the fact that there's not going to be any legislative action on this. I'm sure you've heard that before. Do, do you think that there, I, I'm going to take a wild guess and say you don't think the governor or the stadium backers are right on that. Is that fair to say? Well, I think it's one of those sad parts of conference committees that often they are not, you know, like the I'm just a bill, you know, <laughs> a picture of how life works. But but rather, you know, I I was on conference committees where I wasn't invited to come discuss anything. The report was put on my desk and, and I had to decide, am I going to sign it or not? You know, so things do not always work fairly. Fairly, we do not always play by the rules that we teach children on playgrounds about how you do politics. Um, I think Senator Sylvie had maybe put some language on Budget Bill 5 that got taken out overnight, possibly by the Speaker of the House, who wasn't there much longer after he took that 
that action late at night one night. But there was a lot of consternation about that fact that that language left and, and a lot of heartburn on both sides of the aisle, but especially on the majority party side of the aisle. What do you think will happen if the governor ends up issuing these bonds and some of the lawmakers like Senator Shaw or anybody else follow through on threats not to pay off these bonds? I mean, do you think that would be I think the there right are about to- 141 members of the General Assembly currently that have gone on record that they are not going to appropriate money for the bonds or for cost overruns or, you know, other sports stadium connected uh, items uh, unless there's a vote in the General Assembly or by the people. Now, there have been some who've been arguing, regardless of whether or not there should be, mm-hmm. there, there's been the contention that the state constitution requires, I mean, if these bonds are sold, that requires that the uh, state cover the payments and that the General Assembly doesn't have the power to block that. Do you, do you have any thoughts about that argument? I think the courts are likely to decide, to decide that. I, I do know that Budget Bill 1 is one that I almost, I think I, well, I voted for it every year, and there, there were very few budget bills that I would vote for because I thought we were so badly underspending on essential services. So many of us take paying our debts very seriously. But does the governor have the right to obligate us to certain things without a participation? The of other thing is, I think there the have been there have been court cases that says that you can't obligate the legislature to appropriate money for something. Now, obviously, there, as Joe mentioned, there are constitutional provisions about paying off debt, and that could be a a kind of wild card in this. But I don't think that someone could tell the legislature you have to appropriate $12 million to pay off these stadium bonds every year. That's the decision of the legislature. Well, and and it's, you know, can one body now obligate a future body? That's always something that gets argued as well. Yeah. The other, uh, this is is kind of, we're kind of going from city to state, city to state Mm -hmm. here. But one of the developments that has occurred in recent days is St. Louis Comptroller Darlene Green has come out against the stadium financing plan. She has cited a gap between how much the stadium could potentially generate in taxes and how much it will end up costing. And she told me uh, the following a few days ago. And I can tell you uncategorically, I will not vote for the bill that's in its present uh, state. The present way that it's presented to the board now is, you know, it's in committee. In committee, they can change it. Maybe they'll change it to become more fiscally responsible. Maybe they'll reduce the amount of obligation that the city would have, uh, annual obligation that they would have every year. Then I can see that it would be more palatable uh, for uh, the city to uh, to consider. But in his present form, my vote would be no. And, and here's the reason why her vote matters for our listeners. She's on a three-person board called the Board of Estimate and Apportionment. Um, you would need two votes in order to pass any uh, appropriation bill or financing bill like the stadium bill is. It puts a lot more pressure on President uh, Lewis Reed. But I also think that even if it passes ENA, my guess is she's going to be asked to execute parts of these deal And she's going to be asked to execute parts of this deal. And if she's not comfortable with aspects of it, she could really ask for some concessions here. That's my perception. Obviously, you're not really a city government expert, but do you see her opposition as as significant here? I do. And I I think that uh, she's been a real watchdog for the city's uh, bond rating and and for, uh, you know, just good oversight of, of our spending. So I'm really glad that she's taken this position uh, and um, certainly in the, the recent hearing on the bill about restoring the right to vote, 
um, there was a lot of talk about a, a sort of a crisis in uh, legitimacy of the Board of Aldermen in that so many of their constituents don't believe it's a proper use of tax dollars uh, to, to, to spend it on a professional sports project. project. Polling's been done in the city showing mm-hmm. from 75% to over 80% of wards uh, opposing that. And when, when elected officials don't listen uh, to, their, um, to their constituents on an issue, uh, the constituents act up in a variety of ways. Folks said there, w- there will be a vote, but it may be a proxy vote on another issue, like how the bond issue failed back on a- uh, August 4th. Yeah, and I actually, let me, and I'll, I'll cut this, this mm-hmm. ramble part out. So one of the things that I did after I interviewed the comptroller was ask the Ways and Means Committee, Stephen Conway, mm-hmm. about her opposition. Mm-hmm. Um, the bill is currently going through Ways and Means right now. It, there's a lot of doubt about whether the votes are there mm-hmm. to pass out of it. And here's what Alderman Conway, who I think is probably more pro-stadium than anti-stadium at this point, had Mm -hmm. to say about the Comptroller's opposition. What is her solution to redevelop the North Riverfront? You know, we have a lot of naysayers and obstructionists here. We offer a wide array of services to everybody of all ilks, all backgrounds, all desires of what the city should be. And uh, this is, would be just as the uh, proponents are putting one of those items and uh, to have that riverfront and the intangible benefits of cleaning up our front door are priceless. Now the reason I played that clip is I think that there may be 14 other aldermen who may take that view, some of them grudgingly, some of them more or some of them less grudgingly. Uh, And they basically say yes there's going to be a public cost to this but it could mean a part of the city that doesn't look so good now looks a whole lot better. And then they're claiming that it could then feed other sorts of redevelopment, much like, you know, the new Cardinal Stadium. The whole thing was that it was going to ignite uh, development around there. So what do you have to say to that argument? Well, unfortunately, a lot of the past promises about what, um, you know, spending would do have not come to pass. Um, You know, the the stadium that the Rams have been playing in hasn't uh, led to the uh, you know, reaching nirvana kind of place that it was promised at, <laughs> at the time for that. The Cardinal Stadium hasn't done everything that it was promised to do either. Um, so a lot of these promises get made, and they've been made in like more than five dozen stadiums nationally. So people that study this, the economists that study it, members of the Fed that have studied it, uh, say no, no, uh, the promises have not come true uh, as to how much redevelopment there would be with these deals. And in fact, a lot of it is sort of sub- substitutionary spending that, um, you know, if we spend money on this, we're not spending money on that. And uh, and the other thing maybe could have produced more tax revenue in the end uh, or more redevelopment for the city. Now, we, talk, we talked a lot about the stadium, but what, what are the other issues are you and your group paying attention to going to the next legislative session? Yeah. Well, certainly we're, we continue to be very disappointed that we haven't expanded the income guidelines yet for Medicaid. Uh, we're losing about $2 billion worth of federal funds each year, and many Missourians are in a coverage gap where they can't find affordable, high-quality uh, health care. That's a real issue for us. Um, we're very concerned about the uh, how outdated our subsidized child care laws are and our early childhood education funding uh, is when we don't invest in early childhood Uh, We're basically, um, well, the whole state winds up paying for it because so much of a child's brain architecture is developed in those first five years of life. So we need to be uh, investing in early childhood education. So that's an area that we'll be uh, focusing some on. We are uh, very um, 
uh, very concerned about the issues uh, that, that have been highlighted through the Ferguson Commission process. Uh, we especially are working on a fair and impartial policing bill. We think there are ways to improve the vehicle stops report uh, data collection uh, that's done and, uh, and to improve police training. Uh, that should not only make communities safer, but also make police safer. It's interesting you mentioned the vehicle stops, because I think right now, basically what happens is the attorney general publicizes racial profiling data. And I think, are, are there any penalties if a community stats are like off the charts right now, from your understanding? No, we're trying to get some appropriate sanctions put in into the uh, Fair and Impartial Policing Act that we're working to help draft. I just mentioned that because like almost every year a city like Ladue gets highlighted mm -hmm. every year and, well, they, and there doesn't seem to be any consequences that come their well, way because they, 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 argue, actually... they, ar they argue the other, they yeah. argue that there are extenuating circumstances. And they them. actually have a valid point there. So there's a better way to collect the data that would, would you know, offer a more um, accurate picture of what's going on. Uh, for one thing, we need to, I think it is important to know the racial disparity between the police force and who lives there. You know, the Ferguson numbers were appalling in that regard. Uh, and, and for, uh, you know, tickets that are our, our people driving through, where do those people live? That would be kind of important to know as well. We could be collecting, you know, at least zip codes on that and, and do some crunching because numbers. Because what Ledoux usually says is they, they police a very major part of mm -hmm. 64 where lots of people go right. through. And, you know, that is a, a extenuating circumstance. On the other hand, the, the percentages are so eye-popping that mm -hmm. even if you did kind of make for something like that. Um, yeah. Even if you did adjust for those types of things, it still seems like there's a pretty solid problem, not only there, but in other like West County municipalities well, the, too. The fact that our numbers have, have been horrible for 15 straight years and we've not uh, dealt with it, that is something that we really want people to look at. And we want people to actually notice that there are places in this, the state where police chiefs have, in, have invested in training their offices better, especially around implicit bias, not some hateful thing that you contemplated in advance and reflected on, oh, I want to be as racist in policing as I can. But the way our society has installed implicit bias in us where, you know, for example, a person with a cell phone in their, their hand, you see it as a gun because they have dark skin because of what you've been taught. Sort of like I described earlier how, how I came to the city and I was afraid. I'd been told a bunch of lies and I didn't have anything to check it on. So uh, a, a one I could name that has improved is Blue Springs out in the Kansas City area uh, now has improved their numbers because their police chief is really invested in some training. So there's some people that are doing some things well, and we'd like to see more people do that. Now, how active are you, if at all, now in politics? Are you pretty much in just focusing on advocacy now, or are you thinking at all about ever getting back into the political realm? I, uh, I have learned never to say never um, because of my previous experiences in life where I didn't think I'd run for office, and I did. But I don't, you know, I'm 61 years old. I, I don't see myself running for something else. I love what I do. I love being at Empower Missouri. I hope I'm healthy enough to do it for a long, long time and do it well. Uh, it's, a, it's a great fit for me. Um, I no longer endorse people, uh, candidates for office publicly, because we are a nonpartisan organization. And it's really important that I focus time spending, you know, spend time with people on both sides of the aisle trying to move our issues forward. So I try to 
to downplay. People aren't going to forget that I served as a Democrat and, you know, that uh, that's not going to be I, forgotten. I thought people would confuse you with like a Wig or a very conservative <laughs> Republican. You know, the one thing that I always wondered is maybe if like the, I think you live in the Ninth Ward. I live in the Ninth Ward. If that, if that seat ever came open, it seemed like you would join others who, who have gravitated from the legislature to the Board of Aldermen. But some people I've talked to like Senator Jamila Nasheed has told me in no uncertain terms they will ever go to the Board of Aldermen after their legislative service. Would that be something well, you'd ever two, be interested in? Well, two things. I'm kind of in love with state-level issues. Yeah. So it's, mm-hmm. it's where, where my passion is. I like to work at that level and, and some federal issues. Uh, and and I think there's way too much codependence in city politics that people won't go talk to their neighbor about a dog that barks or about weeds that are high. They call their alderman and ask their alderman to take care of it. And that's pitiful to me. And I, I don't want to take calls all day long about... Uh, you know, somebody's dog pooped on my lawn or whatever. Understood. Now, now, do you see any scenario at all where Missouri uh, might change its stance regarding Medicaid expansion? I mean, the governor's been for it, but the majority in the General Assembly, your Republicans, are not. The reason I'm asking this is because of this weekend's election in Louisiana, where a Democrat, John Bell Edwards, won. He's going to be the next governor. He's conservative on many things, but one of the things he was pushing was Medicaid expansion, which outgoing Governor Bobby Jindal was against, and so was um, David Vitter, who was the Republican. So my my point is, right after the election, uh, Edwards says he's going to move on that right away, and he's going to maybe even figure out how to weigh that he would do it even if the generals, even if their legislature doesn't go along with it. I'm just using that as a backdrop where you're seeing a, a major southern state possibly mm-hmm. changing. And so I'm just curious in your lobbying and in, in, in your dealing with the General Assembly, even though the hospitals have been pressing for some mm-hmm. of this, do you foresee any way that it would change in Missouri or do you think Missouri is going to be a holdout? I love it when I get a chance to work on the same side of an issue with the hospital association, with allied industries, with the Chamber of Commerce. That doesn't happen all that often in my life. So those times are precious to me because I do focus on, you know, issue-based campaigns instead of personalities. So I like never say, well, the chamber's always bad. Well, they're not. I mean, issue by issue, we may agree with them or disagree with them. So I'm kind of shocked that it hasn't happened yet. I do believe it will happen. I think that basically there there's a certain number of legislators that really believe the Affordable Care Act is going to go away. And so they're they're waiting on that. And I think they're going to have to be convinced that, well, it's not going away. So we have to come up with a Missouri solution to a problem that we have because the the health care providers in my own district are starting to be in danger. Thank you very much for for joining what joining us today. Well, um, thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. You can listen to all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And I don't think you personally are on Twitter, but Empower Missouri is on Twitter. at Empower Missouri, right. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long. 